I'm gonna go look. You're not. I'm gonna go look for my woman. You can go look for the other one. Howdy, cowboys. How y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Steve Cuff. And I'm Colin Tanner, and every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes info, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. And Steve, we've done it! We've completed the very first season of Cowboy Bebop. The very first 13 episodes, and then we got another 13 for the second season. Oh, we should mention that, too, in case for some reason you've just skipped ahead to the this episode, we're covering Jupiter Jazz episode one and episode two, or I mean part one and part two. So if you're watching along, now you know what to do. Do you think there's anyone watching along? Like listening to us like a DVD commentary while they watch the episode? Mm-mm. No, like they actually watch the episode and then they listen to the podcast. I've heard some people do that when they do those chronological podcasts. No, I've never done it. I've never done it either. See, that's why I try and get so descriptive when we're talking about these episodes, because if I'm listening to a podcast about some TV show that I used to like back in the day, I'm not going to go back and rewatch it. I just want to hear you talk about it. I'm like, ah. Whatever works. But Steve, before we get on to Jupiter Jazz, a very, very, very interesting episode with lots of subtext that we're going to be discussing. We first need to start off with some Bebop history. And this week, we're going to be covering the entirety of the Japanese voice cast. Yes, the four main players. Why are we putting them all into one bunch together? Well, because they're not that important to me. I don't care about the Japanese voice. Uh, Look, there are subs and there are dubs. People like subtitles. Some people like the uh, the English dub of anime. Back in the day, it it made sense why people had preferences, why there were camps, why there was passion. Because the dubs were usually not that good, except for a few select programs. And subtitles were largely preferable if you actually wanted to follow along with the story instead of having weird voice actors vamp American references into Japanese cartoons. There were the Dark Ages back then. Really, truly, back in the day, there were people that like subs and there were people that like dubs and they would argue all the time. Like on the internet in the 90s, we were just screaming at like, how dare you? How dare you listen to the dubs? Really? Oh, yes. I I mean, I guess I can kind of see that just because I know with old horror movies from like Italy and stuff, you Uh know, uh like there were people like, Oh, I only watch Suspiria with the original subtitles from the Italian mono soundtrack. I would never, ever listen to the English dub. Which, by the way, spoiler alert, with a lot of those old Italian horror movies, they didn't actually record them in Italian. They just dubbed everything later. So what are you doing with yourself? Come on. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because actually when it comes to anime, they've already drawn the episode, right? Here Mm -hmm. in America, we're used to the idea of people going to a booth, they record, and then the animators try and manage it when, they, when they're when they doing their drawings there. In Japan, the episode's already drawn, and then the people are all in a booth together. Usually it's an ensemble uh, sort of deal, and they talk at the screen while they watch along. So it doesn't really matter. It's not like the performance influenced the animation. But let's talk about the idea of subtitles and dub really quick from a historical preference, just to say that both are correct. Whether you prefer subtitles or dub, no matter what part of film you enjoy, they've always existed. When it comes to your preference, are you a sub or a dom? <laughs> well, yeah, give me a few drinks first. <laughs> <laughs> well, almost everybody agrees, I should say before we get into it, that yes, Cowboy Bebop is better as a dub than subtitled. It's the one that universally everybody agrees on. But I think to start, we need to talk a little bit about film history. See, uh, all the way back when film started, 
It didn't have dub. It was all sub. They were silent films. You know, occasionally, whenever there was an event that they couldn't describe, they would just cut to text on a screen. And they didn't do it every two seconds like they did in that crappy movie, The Artist. But by the late 1920s, film moved on to sound, which must have really sucked for deaf people. I mean, think about that. For, you know, if you're deaf, you're like, this whole medium is perfect for me. Yeah, and then it's just like, mm, not anymore. Well, the often recognized first sound picture was, of course, 1927's The Jazz Singer. And 14 months after its debut in America, it appeared appeared in Paris with French subtitles. It is the documented very first example of subtitles on a talkie. But let's talk about this for a moment. Has there ever been a live action movie, maybe a drama more than like horror movies or even like those Godzilla movies or even Kung Fu films, like a real drama that you would sit there and you would actually watch with dub rather than sub? Uh, nothing that I can think of in like, as far as contemporary things go, I, I can't think of a single one off the top of my head. You wouldn't watch like a Kurosawa film and, and have like dub on there, would you? I don't think that's an option. I mean, maybe it is, but... Okay, that's enough about other people's subtitles and dubs. Let's get back into Cowboy Bebop and talk about the Japanese cast. Let's start off by talking about Spike. And uh, we'll play a clip right here. Here is Spike giving his three things that he hates speech from episode 9, jamming with Edward. That was Kochi Yamadara, a highly prolific voice actor over in Japan, but not someone you would usually see as a leading man. See, he was Ryoga and Rama and One Half, which I love Rama and One Half, Shun Akiyama in the Yakuza series, and he's Zenigata in the brand new Loop on the Third series. But most recently, he debuted the brand new character Lord Beerus for the Dragon Ball movie and then for the series Dragon Ball Super, which is a huge role, and even if they never make another show, he's going to have a lot of work in those future video games. One super cool fact is Toonami actually hired him to do a voice for Tom as an April Fool's joke, because of course Tom is voiced by Steve Bloom, the voice of Spike Spiegel, so they hired him to do the voice of Tom for April Fool's, but in Japanese, because, you know, they played the same character. Now you listened to some of these clips of uh, Spike. What, what, what did you get out of him? Uh, pretty much I had the same impression from all the voice clips that you sent me, and it's just, it's really flat. It's mm. super, super flat to the point where I can't tell, like if, I, if I'm in another room and I'm listening to the dub of Cowboy Bebop and I hear Spike and I hear Jet and I hear Edward and all these different characters, I can tell not only that they're different characters, but they have distinct personalities and I can sort of start to ascertain who they are as people, uh, you know, visually and, and character wise, just from their voices. When I hear the Japanese version, I, it's just, they all kind of blend together to me. One thing you can definitely say about Japanese voice acting is they have a lot of different distinct voices that really stand out from one another. Cowboy Bebop Bebop, no. They all just sort of blur the lines. I can't tell Jet or Spike apart, ever. Yeah, and it's not to say that these voice actors aren't talented. It's just... I really feel like they're doing similar, like, vocal inflections, I think. Wouldn't that mean that it was bad directing? Could be. Or bad casting, honestly. Because I was doing a lot of thinking about this, and as much as we give credit to Shinichiro Watanabe, somebody has to take the fall for really bad performances. And, uh, as far as I can tell, he kept telling uh, the voice actor of Spike to not try so hard. He kept instructing him to, like, hang back a little bit more, which I think was totally the wrong inflection because it makes him and Jet just interchangeable. And speaking of Jet, let's hear a little bit of him in Japanese from episode 10, Ganymede Elegy. This is where he confronts his old girlfriend. お前を責めに来たんじゃない。<laughs> 
ただ知りたかったあの時お前がいなくなったわけよ That was Ancho Ishizuka. As you can probably tell there, he's kind of stoic. Not much emotion, not much conflict. He just says his lines. As you said, Steve, flat, flat performances. A very different take on the character.、Uh, the actor himself is best known as the narrator and Professor Oak in Pokemon. Oh, hell yeah. Now, if you read his Wikipedia, you'd think he's a big star, but all of his roles are super small. Well, actually, he plays big characters, but small roles, you know what I mean. There's actually an audio commentary with the Japanese Jet, and he can't remember Jet's last name. So <laughs> this series did not leave an impression on him. Though, for whatever reason, This role did get him a job on Japanese newscasts for news stories regarding the Iraq War. Yes, really. Keep living the dream, buddy. I guess we can't really find anything to talk about his performance in general, but just that kind of contrast between Bo Billingsley's sort of forlorn delivery in those moments compared to him just being, I am a man. I am a manly man. And I just want the truth. Yeah, Walter Cronkite. Let's head over to Faye from episode three Honky Tonk Women when she's begging to be let go and talking about being Romanese and all that good stuff. Huh? That was Megumi Hashibara, and she does have a big career in voice acting. She was Aihabara in Detective Conan, who's super important to the plot, Jesse from Team Rocket in Pokemon, and Rama Sautome in Rama and One Half. And I love the original Japanese. Rama and one half. I never listened to the dub, so I'm a big fan of her performance, but not here. Once again, it's looking like it might be a direction issue. Or as we've talked about in the past, you know, the actors and the animators and the studio that was making this program didn't really get it. They didn't quite see Watanabe's vision. I'm giving him excuses. And finally, here is Ed from episode 11 Toys in the Attic, running around with Ayn looking for the monster. That was Ao Itada, who we've mentioned before was in middle school when she auditioned for the part. I have no idea why they chose to go with a real child. It's not unheard of, but really bizarre given the demands of the role. Anyway, Itada did a few stints on Digimon and then bailed for the music industry, where she remains to this day. And lastly, one that I think is really crucial to understanding the difference in philosophy to this show, here's Punch and Judy. Punch and Judy is like the only one that I actually like. I think there's a little bit more static in their voice. It sounds like they're on television more. Yeah, I, I think that's part of it, but also, I don't know. It just seems so like theatrical and over the top. And clearly they're speaking Japanese, but also Punch is, is doing this weird like twanginess. And I, I don't know. It's, it's weird. And I dig it. I would say it's the least bad. I still kind of prefer the idea of Punch being a terrible actor.、Mm -hmm. I just enjoy that because it seems like they're almost on public access and giving out information to have people with lots of guns chase after other people with lots of guns, which is just insane. I will say this version is far more friendly sounding. But that's it for the Japanese voice cast and Bebop history. So I think it's really safe to say without this dub, without the correct directors and these actors, Cowboy Bebop would feel like a very, very different show. Honestly, I, I can't even imagine watching this series without hearing Steve Bloom, Wendy Lee, Bo Billingsley, and Melissa Fawn. Now, Steve, 
Jupiter Jazz. That's a very specific name. It must be a jazz song that it's named after, right? You would think. For those of you unfamiliar, there are actually two songs named Jupiter Jazz, both released in 1992, and they appear to be totally unrelated. And then no one else used that song title until after Cowboy Bebop came out. Spooky. The first is known as Jupiter Jazz, The Scat Mix by Azel Brown Jr. Let's give that a listen. Now, is this the scat mix preferable to the original? There is no original mix. It's I cannot find one. Just the scat mix. Well, I'm sure that you know maybe this person may have done a number of live performances, right? And then they, when they decided to put on some wax, they finally said, "Okay." Any known collaborations uh, with Scatman? Unfortunately, no. Okay. It's the only song listed by Azel, and some people on YouTube, in the comments at least, keep referencing someone named Roger S. But I couldn't find anything on it. So if you know, please email in Anime Broadcast Club at gmail.com. Let us know. Now, Steve, you have another idea of where the title came from. What was it? Well, I think this is the far more likely option, Colin. Given you, given you had to fall down a YouTube rabbit hole to find the, the scat mix. Here. I'm sure Watanabe is a big fan of Roger S., whoever that is. The more likely option here is the song Jupiter Jazz off the album World to World by Underground Resistance. Why don't you, why don't you throw that out? Let's give it a listen. They are, they are great. They are great. All right, for anyone who's not familiar, Underground Resistance is kind of like an electronic music techno collective of sorts, and they had a lot of members going in and out uh, during different phases and albums. Contemporary analog. Think about Odd Future. How many people are in Odd Future? Who's in Odd Future now? Who was in Odd Future? It doesn't matter. The point is, it's a collective. It's a bunch of people who have banded together in one way or another. So it's kind of like an open-door policy. Sure. Underground Resistance has had 31 members since they were founded in Detroit, Michigan, in 1989. They do have two co-founders that we know of, Mike Banks and a guy named Jeff Mills, but Mike is the only one that's been there the whole way through, and he's the one who made this track, Jupiter Jazz. So there's individuals making individual tracks that appear on individual albums that just go under the moniker Underground Resistance. Mm-hmm, exactly. And these guys have mostly lived up to their name of, you know, being underground. Uh, <laughs> you're not going to hear them in a McDonald's commercial. They're super, super, super leftist, so they're against commercial music in a lot of ways, uh, but they're at least known well enough that they tour through throughout the world, including Japan, silly. Ah, makes sense. You know, where someone like Watanabe might have, you know, uh, maybe caught him at some point. And they did a stint in 2018, 2015, and 2014, most recently. So there you go. You know, the funny thing about it is that electronic dance music or EDM or techno, there's like a lot of different sub-branches. To be popular in the 90s or 2000s, you gotta be in a car commercial. If you're not in a car commercial, no one knows who you are, as weird as that is. And so for a group like them that totally reject commercialism, like they they actually will hand out like socialist and communist propaganda at shows. That's remarkable dedication after this many years. And if you grew up playing PS1 games, uh, a lot of the soundtracks were deeply inspired by Underground Resistance and other like-minded like early electronic music techno groups and individuals. Uh, and they kind of paved the way for EDM and techno to become huge later in the decade. Uh, but their conviction kind of held them back from that level of success. And this is totally the stuff a music snob like Watanabe would love, I think. And stuff that I would love. I'm 
I'm, I really want to listen more. Because you are a giant snob. <laughs> yeah, because I want to go and listen to more of their stuff. I, I said, I like, also, I, also, I said Aerosmith was good last week, so just give me a break here, okay? Now, I mentioned the soundtracks to PS1 games, but let's not throw our brethren, the Nintendo 64, under the bus, because Extreme G had a bumping techno soundtrack. But yeah, I think Underground Resistance, totally cool group, and uh, hopefully this has inspired you guys to go out there and maybe listen to more of their stuff, because it's great. But Steve... I got a question for you. When did Jupiter Jazz episode one and episode two, part one and part two, I keep saying that, when did they air? I'm so glad you asked, Colin. Well, on TV Tokyo, they aired May 22nd and May 29th, respectively, in the year 1998. And so there's no episode five on TV Tokyo, which means they just got the follow-up to episode five, which is super weird because then how do you contextualize Vicious being a thing? And we We're going to have to talk about that because I feel like they made some very deliberate choices to try to even explain to the audience who these characters are. Mm-hmm. They really cut the legs out from our this episode. This episode also aired on Wow Wow in Japan, my personal favorite television network, and that was January 9th and January 16th in 1999. Over in the States, we got these episodes on Adult Swim on October 7th and October 14th 2001. Fascinating. So it was a two-parter, and they aired two episodes every single Sunday night on Adult Swim, but even then, they had to split these up. Pretty funny. Uh, This episode was written by Kikito Nobumoto, who's obviously the head of series composition, but has also written a few episodes, including Asteroid Blues and uh, another one that I can't remember right now. And part one was directed by Yoshiki Takai, who also directed Gateway Shuffle, Waltz for Venus, and Asteroid Blues. Part two was directed by Kurosato, the director behind Sympathy for the Devil, Jamming with Edward, and Stray Dog Strut. A total comp conflict of styles, if you ask me, but I will at least say that these two episodes feel like one cohesive vision, which is kind of amazing if you think about it. But I do want you to keep something in mind, because it's going to be an issue that I'm going to bring up constantly when we discuss this episode. I'm talking to you, dear listener, and you, Steve. As we go along, whose story is this? Think about that for a moment, and now let us continue. All right, Count. this one is kind of a weird one in terms of how it's framed and how it starts off. We actually start this episode off not in space, not on a spaceship, not in some city somewhere, but just up on a mountain, and you hear like this voice singing in the distance, and it turns out to be this guy, Laughing Bull, who's the informant that Spike went to in episode one. Hey, Laughing Bull. Good to see you again. What do you think that they are? Because I assume Mars, because it's just like a red area. I don't know. I guess Mars would make sense considering the last episode where they were headed. Okay, there you go. Because they set the computer to take them to Mars. Oh, there we go. Continuity. Laughing Bull, uh, once again, is a magical person. In this scene? That's that's about his whole thing. That's what he does. And this time he's with a small child, and it looks like they're camping yeah. for the evening. Uh, so then the boy spots this falling star. Laughing Bull informs the boy that it was actually a, t- a tear of a warrior from a, quote, pitiful soul that couldn't find his way to the lofty realm where the great spirit awaits us all. Uh, yeah, so we're getting a little heady here to start, eh? Yeah, and also I just, mm, I don't know. Laughing Bull. Come on, buddy. I saw some people online that even referenced this child as his son. I'm like, are you serious? He looks to be like 90. That's not his son. Yeah, I don't think Laughing Bull uh, is fucking. You know, we're only a couple of minutes in. Obviously, we're going to talk about Gren a bunch in this episode. But is he saying that Gren is in hell? Is that what he's saying, basically? I guess, I mean, if you cut through the philosophical mumbo jumbo, that kind of sounds like what he's alluding to. So I'm going to go with... Yes. Or is it almost like a Buddhist mentality where he's not reached the full completion of cycle and he will return as another form, baby? (laughs) If you will. (laughs) Well, we leave that planet and we go into outer space and we see a big red ship. 
Which, by the way, that red ship, it's where the Red Dragon clan is, obviously. That's the same color red as on uh, Spike's Swordfish 2, which is kind of a neat little factoid. And we see Vicious! Vicious is alive! What was your reaction here, Steve? Were you just like, oh, of course? No, I mean... <sighs> It's hard because my initial reaction was, wait, didn't he die in episode five? And then I thought about it and I'm like, mm, it's anime. And if there's one thing I know about anime and I don't know a lot, but if a guy's dead, he's probably not dead. I kind of treat it like, uh, you know, the Joker was back in the animated series. Like Batman could punch him into an explosion that would liquefy anybody and he'd just be back in a couple of episodes. Sure. This is, this is like any serialized thing. It's like if somebody dies or goes away, you know, they're going to come back. You know, we, we are, we are actually being way too picky about this because how is Spike alive? <laughs> Maybe also we should... true. Yeah, Spike should also be very dead. He fell out of a two-story window after being shot and stabbed and all sorts of things. A lot of bandages. We learned that. Well, most we'll of that Vicious had uh, equal caretaking. So the Red Dragon Syndicate elders, they're asking Vicious about a red-eye deal that's worth 225 million Wulongs. And that's seemingly kind of come out of nowhere. And Vicious explains that Gren contacted him because they served together during the Titan War. And the economic depression on the moon of Callisto has made him desperate for cash. So it kind of sounds like there's this recession that's affecting everyone. And also, this is a really quick setup to a very convoluted thing. Okay, so we got Shaman, and then, oh god, Vicious is back. By the way, here's a big deal worth a lot of money. By the way, I was in a war with a guy, and also there's an economic depression maybe i don't know we're gonna see that happen a lot throughout this episode especially if you were back in 1998 watching this on tv tokyo you would have no idea what's going on no no clue i will say that uh you know the entire the the shaman ritual it doesn't weird me out that much just because we've seen how people take everything from earth and they just bring it into outer space and you know triads there's a lot of tradition and honor at least the presentation of honor that, that has been carried throughout uh mafias all throughout the world but uh, i will say that their design and the way that the lights come up from underneath them it really reminds you of like a terry gilliam film or something they're all these really creepy wrinkled old men so these three elders these wrinkled old men they they basically start to mock vicious and i guess that's just to put him in his place but they agree to the deal so long as Vicious brings along Lynn as backup. And privately, Vicious complains about the elders and attempts to separate himself from Lynn, but Lynn swears loyalty. Lynn is super annoying and lame, and I don't like him. When he dies later in the episode, we're going to have to have a long conversation about him, because I have a theory on that guy. But I do want to talk for a moment uh, just a bit about the voice actor for Vicious, Skip Stelrick, who we never talked about before and we will not talk about in the future. What is this? Bebop history? No, but Mary Elizabeth McGillan always sounds disappointed whenever she talks about his performance as if uh, she would tell him to go as low as he could possibly go and he couldn't go possibly any lower. I don't know what she's complaining about. I think she was just hanging around with Steve Bloom too much because I think Vicious is like negative decibels low. He's amazing. Like it's, it honestly sounds like he never talks. I'm by myself. I'm going with you. Then be aware. If you want to survive... You'll have to betray me at times. No. What, what do you think about the spaceship, though? It's kind of cool to see the inside of a ship. We've never seen the inside of a ship since, I think, episode three with the poker chip. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It's okay, but I bet they don't have a back room with a refrigerator in it that's full of lobster monsters. Well, my fan fiction can answer that. Really creepy and unsettling title card here. Instead of having any sort of music, it's just these horns! It's just like someone blowing air through a saxophone. Yeah, this entire episode is fucking bonkers. Like, when I talk about anime and how a lot of times I don't know what's going on... And, and why there seems to be, like, just way too much shit packed into an episode. It's this that's happening right now. And then in my head, I'm thinking, well, at least I sort of know what's going on because I saw episode five. But, like, if you're watching TV Tokyo, how the fuck do you know 
what is happening right now. Yeah. And that title card is also just really unsettling and just kind of is like, well, we're moving, we're going, because the next shot is just Spike flinging himself right at the camera because it's hot. It's too hot. And, oh my God, I love how this is his life now. He looks over and he sees Ed and is like, where is everybody? And just Ed is just bobbing her head around because she's on the internet, not paying attention in the world. Spike finally uh, approaches Jet, asks what's going on. Apparently, Faye has left. Oh, that's so sad. But not for him. He actually doesn't care. They even read this brilliant note that she wrote. Please, please don't look for me. It'd be too hard to see you, so I'm leaving without saying goodbye. Please, please do not look for me. Free at last. We'll, we'll be definitely talking about Faye's motivations as we go on here, but why did she leave the note? I don't know. And also, if she stole all the money, which we find out that she does later, she stole all the money, left the ship, then why do you leave a note that says, please don't look for me? Of course, I gotta fucking look for you. You took all of their money. But I suppose they had to have her take the money because at this point, if Faye just left, I don't think they would have le- looked for her. That's true. Well, I think Jet would have looked for her, as we'll find out in the uh, upcoming scene. We cut back to an interesting perspective. Once again, it's Ed's head bouncing up and down while Spike and Jet are looking off in the distance. According to the subtitles here, Ed was speaking in Japanese. I'm not sure. That sounded like complete gibberish to me. But Ed does discover a nearby deal. Something big is going on, codenamed Julia. Because as we all know, I don't know about you, but like, I remember one time I had a crush on a girl and I heard her name and it caused me to freak out and start running towards people and shaking them. What is wrong with Spike here? I don't know. There's a lot of weird stuff going on. Like, the stuff with Faye is weird. Like, it doesn't really set up why she left uh, or really what's going on. I will defend Faye later on on that on that, on that that rationale, but the idea of Spike just having this like response where he's like, oh, yeah. I hear the name. And it's 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 a pretty common name, I'm guessing. Jet says it's a common name. Like if, if you heard the name Steve. <gasps> Steve Cuff. Oh, no, no, I was thinking, <laughs> oh, Steve Bloom, the, the guy from uh, Cowboy Bebop. It's like, no, it's me, Steve Cuff. Who are you? Yeah. It's just something about him like running over and start shaking, like, where is that coming from? And then immediately running over to like get inside of his spaceship. No, where are you going, buddy? <laughs> What's going on? You're going to go to a whole planet and just walk around and be like, anybody know anybody named Julia? Again, can you imagine you just wandering around asking people if they know a guy named Steve? Everybody knows a fucking Steve. So, Jet and Spike argue about this. That's it. You've really gone too far. Then don't come back. There won't be a place for you. That's your call, pal. Anyway, at least you won't be lonely now. Not with your weird roommates. My roommates? That's why you've been staying here? You're being stupid. It's been three years since I teamed up with you, but I never knew you had such ridiculous ideas about this thing. What a joke. And I thought you were the one who was lonely. I'm glad we cleared that up. Good riddance. At least I'll be able to keep some food in the place now. I never did understand you right to the very end. I don't understand either. Jet's in the right, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Like, there is no reason for Spike to be running off like this. Jet takes care of him, looks after him. He's a cool guy. They said they've been partnered up for like three years, which mm-hmm. gives us a little bit of that insight. Well, you've, you've been looking for that insight into Jet's and Spike's relationship. What did you get out of this conversation? Not a lot. It just seems, <laughs> again, it, it seems very out of character for Spike. And... It's he's just being an irrational douchebag. So I'm hashtag team Jet on this one. I feel really bad for Jet though because we know just from his personality that he just he likes having people around. Yeah, you know? well, obviously, I mean, it, Spike is useful, but Faye is a liability. Ed is like a crazy. She's a crazy kid, basically. He just adopted a dog. I don't even think he likes dogs that much. That is very very true. Let's talk about that dog. Let's talk about Ayn. Let's talk about that amazing moment where Ed stops using the computer and just falls back right on top. 
cup of wine. Yeah, that's pretty good. I just that animation from the struggle to him surrendering is so beautiful. It really sums up their relationship. So now we are heading off to Callisto. All right, so Callisto. It's the second largest moon of Jupiter, the first being Ganymede. And compared to the other moons, it's actually the farthest from Jupiter itself. It's riddled with craters from numerous meteor showers, leading many to call it a dead moon. But much like Ganymede, scientists have recently learned that Callisto may in fact have a dense ocean beneath its surface. Mm, we hear that about a lot of these planets. If not for Jupiter, we would be able to see Callisto and the other three moons at night. And of course, they would be planets then, not moon. Jupiter wasn't there, then we'd have a bunch of other planets. Now, as we just said, there's a dense ocean because it's likely a mix of ice and rocks. So Bebop's idea of a snow-covered planet isn't all that strange. The real strangeness, though, that comes from Callisto's name, which comes from the Greek myth. Callisto was a princess who was treated poorly by the rest of her family, so she left and became a follower of the goddess Artemis. Zeus gets jealous, transforms himself into Artemis, and then has sex with Callisto. She gets pregnant, and then she gets kicked out of Artemis's group. Zeus, non-consensual god sex? Really? You are literally the most powerful god. Why you gotta do that, bro? So anyway, she gives birth to a baby boy, and uh, this other goddess shows up and turns Callisto into a bear for no fucking reason, and then a decade and a half later, she's still a bear, and her son is hunting bears, and, well, he's actually about to kill his mom, but once they recognize each other, they wander into the temple of Zeus to be killed, and Zeus places them as constellations in the sky. It just sounds like they're making it up as they go, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a real bullshit Greek myth. All of them are bullshit. That's whenever I hear people go, oh, the Greek myths, oh, and it's like, it's not that impressive. No, you know? that's that's some straight up bullshit. Can you imagine trying to make that into a movie? Could not fucking happen. So, I mean, Callista's really getting a bum deal out of this myth, and then she finds her kid, and he doesn't kill her, but then they just get killed anyways? Uh, so, yeah. Rome, Greece, listen up. Workshop your shitty stories. Anyway, Spike takes off and we get our very first shot of Callisto. Let's talk about the design for just a moment. It's a frozen city that still manages to have three relatively tall skyscrapers. Though we can see there's a lot of construction in the background that appears that maybe has stopped because we know they're in a depression. So we have these cranes that have nothing to build. Uh, and there's even a lonely freeway with a broken down car nearby. People are wearing gas masks. That is haunting imagery for me. And then there's a man on the street that's selling car parts. Things are not looking good. Now, I've noticed some people say, oh, this takes inspiration from Russia or somewhere. I don't buy into that. I think this is the North Korean capital, Pyongyang, because there was a lot of documentaries coming out in the 90s about that capital. If you Google any photos of Pyongyang, it will be very sunny and whatnot because they, you know, most of the time it's during the summer that they allow outsiders in. But if you've ever seen the winter photographs, whoo, it is, it is spooky. It is stark. They were actually constructing a ton of new buildings in the 90s as well, or I guess it was the 80s, and then they had to stop because they had a falling out with the USSR, aka the USSR fell out, <laughs> and there was also a terrible famine because of a series of monsoons, and there were just these buildings that just weren't finished. There were just cranes sitting around just in, in their capital. Oh, that's super depressing. And there's actually, like, traffic women guiding traffic when there's no cars. I think it's it's visually really interesting because the first time we saw Gamamede, like, we actually saw it in the show, it's this beautiful planet, right? Like, you got all this sunshine, this beautiful ocean, but at the same time, it felt really kind of, like, bleak and desolate. There weren't a lot of people, and people were sort of isolated there. And this has that same bleakness and isolation, but it's like, hey, instead of a beautiful tropical wonderland, it's a desolate winter hellscape. It does sound like that recession, though, is all around those moons and, and Jupiter itself. Like, it sounds like the entire area is affected, and this is just the worst of the worst. And also, just to talk about maybe a color scheme a little bit, the idea that uh, because it's a cold planet, it's blue. There's this hue of blue that's over everything. 
everything. Excellent color design on here. We join Faye, who's enjoying some nice jazz music, getting drunk inside of Rester's house, which uh, is likely the French word Rester, so it means to have a place to stay. By the way, we see Grin, he's playing that saxophone, but he's playing in silhouette, which is very atmospheric and moody, but it also means that the animators don't have to show him pressing the buttons themselves. Really clever. Uh-huh. But apparently, Faye's not just having a drink, she's having a bit of a cold, and she sneezes three times as we are introduced to Gren. Take care. Yeah, that was a pretty close one. If someone sneezes and no one says take care, that person will turn into a fairy. That's what they say around here, you know. Then there's no problem. I'm already a fairy, don't you know that? I'm not as simple as I seem, Mr. Saxophone. Women aren't my style, sorry. Oh, what a pity. However, the others are all quite interested. Didn't you know? There are no women in this town. Mmm, then I should be very popular. You should be very careful. There's no women in this city, which the city is known as the Blue Crow. Shouldn't this city be, like, super gay? Yeah, and it could be. I, I think I think there's a lot of repressed sexuality going on here. It's kind of weird. Correct me if I'm wrong. They mention the fact that there's no women on multiple occasions. They don't ever really talk about why. I think it's just a weird dink or something. That is a bizarre fucking coincidence. Ladies who are listening right now, if you found ladies. out- Ladies! Hey, ladies! If you found out that there was a city that had absolutely no women on there, would you go? I don't think so. No, absolutely not. But how do you get to that point? It's never really discussed. They're just like, ah, there's no women around here. And the first time they say it, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess there's not a lot of women around here. Like, I thought they meant like in this very specific location we're at, at this bar, in this part of town. No, they literally mean there's no women anywhere. Uh, it's a narrative conceit. I'll give it to it because it's just an interesting idea and it makes Faye's experience all the stranger. I'm going to give this episode a lot of shit, but I'm going to let it go on that one, Okay. <laughs> Uh, here's an interesting factoid. The character designer, Kawamoto, actually ignored Kikito Nobumoto's instructions about how to design Gren. Here's a quote from Kawamoto. And then there's Gren. It was hard to create this character because he was so atypical. I didn't want it to be a stereotype. Apparently the scenario writer wanted Gren to be more like Brad Pitt, and I got scolded for that. But I was very satisfied with the results. And I agree with them. I can't imagine a Brad Pitt, square-jawed person being Gren. I love Gren's design. Yeah, this is very... I mean, I mean, Vicious is kind of the same way in terms of how the design is, but this is like your typical I'm a bad guy in a Japanese RPG video game. Uh, they they have these very like feminine silhouettes, uh, but they have like a lot of like super toxic classic masculine traits. And with Gren, you don't you don't necessarily get all that toxicity. You do get this interesting blend of of very feminine, very masculine, uh, like visual indicators. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, Spike and Vicious are two sides of the same coin. And I mean, in episode five, I can see that. But here they really emphasize that Grin and Vicious are basically the same person, mm-hmm. except that Grin obviously uh, is not a horrible monster. Yeah, that's true. Oh my God. Okay. If there is one character that deserves their own series in Cowboy Bebop, it's this guy that we're about to talk about. The man that is just standing there and smashing old computer monitors with a giant mallet. Who is paying him to do this? And can I get that job? Because that sounds like a perfect weekend. I don't know any woman. Like I know. Not even a rumor? I don't have any luck with him, I'll tell you that. I'd rather hook up with a spiny armor. 
There are no women on this planet. Me smash computer with big hammer. See, most of the time when people hate women, they're driven to the computer. So this is fascinating. Yeah, right? He says he'd rather fuck an armadillo. That's <laughs> so great. But he does mention to Spike that there is a Julia a few miles away. That turns out to be a transvestite sex worker named Julius. Which is kind of funny, but then they go and mess it up. I don't want to be too picky right here, but like Spike's gay panic in this scene. Yeah. Oh, come on. It's it's very late 90s. It, no, but it's not. See, that's the thing. I mean, it is late 90s, but it's not very Cowboy Bebop. Like, I, I don't imagine Spike, even back then, even watching this, I always found it very odd that Spike was uh, so offended or so concerned that this uh, man who likes to dress in women's clothing was, it was hitting on him or calling him handsome. Yeah, yeah. Like, I figured that he'd be like okay guy whatever like he would roll it off no I, I think based on what we've seen so far in this show i would assume bebop would be better but yeah it's super late 90s gay panic for sure anyway i will say i love the design of julius because he has the exact same hair as julia like the exact same golden locks. oh yeah that's really funny so julius tells Spike that he's going to find Gren down at the Blue Crow, even though isn't the city called the Blue Crow or isn't the city Blue Crow? And then so the and the bar is it's Rester's house, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and he tells him that because that's where Gren hangs out with women. Apparently that's he's known as the guy that hangs out with women. Oh, OK. <laughs> I, yeah, I I don't know. So those vague directions, they also confuse Spike, and he ends up asking some random guys in the street, which results in a large gang following him down to a dead end. You know how it happens, you know. Oh my god. Can we just talk about before the fight, like the way that the shots are set up, the kind of tilted angles where we can see the people that are laying up against the wall and they join the crowd. We have those high angles where you can see this this massive humanity that's just following Spike. Just from a design perspective, giving him that pink, puffy uh, jacket really helps him stand out from the background. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think if Spike was in his normal getup, he would just like literally blend into the background completely. And I like that jacket too, just because it looks like something he would never wear and something they bought in haste. Yeah, he looks uncomfortable this entire episode. <laughs> it looks like an angry hedgehog. I love the fight scene though. It's Boy, it's probably my favorite part of this episode. You're vicious. What did you say? Where's the money? Hand it over or you won't live to spend it. <laughs> you think I'm vicious? You don't know what vicious is! We're gonna stack this in terms of fight scenes we've seen so far in, in Bebop. Oh, jeez. I mean, it's, I don't know, top three. Top three? <laughs> All right, name them, Steve. What are your top three fight scenes? Uh, the vicious spike fight in episode five is number one. Number one. Right, should I go backwards? Wait, how are we doing this? <laughs> well, then you're counting down number two. Yeah, okay, so that. number two is gonna be number two regardless, so that is uh, the fight scene from episode one. Oh, yeah, me too. A really gory one. And... Number three is this one. Very good. Ha! Look, I did it. I bet you didn't think I could do that. <laughs> I guess that's true. I know anime better than anyone. I do have a little bit of beef about this fight scene, though, is how we get into it. Well, well, before we do that, I do want to mention that there's that amazing low angle shot, you know, where the camera's shaking because Spike makes a run for it and then we see the footsteps. Just that little bit of uh, pretending like it's a real camera. Always love that effect. But when they finally corner him, right, they go, hey, uh, you're vicious. And Spike, who is the coolest dude in the universe, for some reason freaks the hell out. These words just work on him. Julia and Vicious. What's that? I'm not Vicious. You know, and has to go. On. Yeah, I don't know what his deal is. This is like 
this whole thing is very uncharacteristic. The vicious thing, the Julia thing, it's like I don't even know you, Spike. He's going to fight these guys regardless. He's cornered. We don't need to hear this whole like, oh, you think I'm vicious? You don't know what vicious is. Like, vicious doesn't seem that bad. I mean, he's bad, but not that much worse than a lot of the other people that they've fought before. I don't know. So emo, Spike. Edgelord Spike Spiegel. Before we even start the fight, though, Spike does that thing where he just punches the air duct. <laughs> like, what is going on? He's so angry about being called vicious. It's, it's not even air. It's like a pipe, isn't yeah. it? He just like punches a hole in a pipe. He jumps like 30 feet in the air or something and lands down kicking some guy in the head. He's kicking more people in the head. He's elbowing people in the back of the neck. Two others in the face. He knocks a dude out with a punch, dodges a pipe, and trips a man into a stack of two by fours. I love how like the camera's kind of moving in between the fight where he trips that guy. It feels very claustrophobic and you really do feel like you've lost your balance as well. We got reverse spinning heel kicks to a man in the jaw, dodges another attack. Judo throws a man, open palm, strikes a dude, shattering the gas mask, flinging him into the air and having him crash down on the boxes. That might be my favorite animation in the entire episode, just watching that mask fall apart. It's grotesque almost. He throws another guy into another guy, runs up a dude's chest and kicks him in the side of the head, sending one, two, three guys into a wall and the rest, well, they just run away, which is very smart. Very, very smart. And Spike literally squeezes the man for information, smashing his face into the wooden planks and then back into the headlock. And the boss man admits that, uh, you know, he heard a deal was going down. He thought he was rich and of of course, all foreigners are rich, so why wouldn't Spike be? I love that little touch. And then says that, yeah, you know, codename Julia for this drug deal. Sounds like some sleazy girl. I don't even know what term he uses. But then Spike just nails him and then looks right at the camera. Oh, this action sequence right here. I would say this might be some of the best animation just in the entire series, just all crammed into one section. Now, it's worth noting the guy that Spike knocks out, he's there for the lunar red eye. So maybe there's a difference. He says lunar red eye deal, not regular red eye deal. Maybe there's a solar red eye that makes everything go faster. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you got your solar, you know, that's your uppers. You got your lunar. Those are your downers. What are you looking for, kid? We, we were just talking about the design of, uh, of Spike wearing that pink jacket. We're about to see Jet in, in just a moment. And we should just talk about Faye as well. Faye having that kind of bomber jacket, like that World War II style leather, even though she still has... Nothing covering her legs. It is very cold out there. I don't know what she's thinking. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I like Jet wearing that uh, that little Russian cap, whatever they call those things. Oh, sure. Like the Russian soldier hat. Yeah. Nasanka. Asaka? Osaka? I don't know. But that's the name of his hat anyway. So yeah, we're back with Jet and he enters a bar and he's looking for information on Faye. Uh, but instead, he learns all about Grin on this episode of Forget Big it. Shot. There are no bounty heads around here. Whiskey with light green. <laughs> That kind of cowboy. Right, yeah, you couldn't possibly be a bounty hunter. Grencia Mars, Elijah Kuo Ekener. What a long name! He escaped from prison three years ago, and the statute of limitations is about to run out. And the bounty? Show enough! It's now the time! Don't miss this opportunity! Though I hate to admit it, I kind of hate to see him go. What a shame! Jet orders a cowboy. Uh, but then the bartender gets confused and he said, there's no bounty heads around here. And yet Big Shot's playing at the bar? Ooh, that is a little confusing. Right? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, this could be some like rough and tumble bar. So he's just like, why don't you go elsewhere? Well, he's excited that he has a bounty on himself. Maybe he's hoping he's going to be on the episode. Yeah. You never know. It's like America's Funniest Home Videos over there. But hey, let's talk about a cowboy. And we're not talking about the Marlboro Man. We're not talking about John Wayne. We're talking about a drink that if you went to a bar and ordered it tomorrow, the bartender would go, what the fuck is that? Seriously. And then he'd, and then he'd Google it. Yeah, I don't even know what a Cowboy is. Yeah, I, I have no idea. I've I've never had one before. But we looked it up. 
Have you ever said to yourself, I wish I could get fucked up on Bailey's, but it's impossible because it's like 2% alcohol. <laughs> so what if you mixed whiskey and light cream? Straight whiskey, straight light cream. Then it'd be nearly identical to Bailey's Irish cream, but just with, you know, regular whiskey. Me, personally, super gross sounding. <laughs> really? Don't want that in my life. Yeah, Colin, uh, go home, do, do yourself a favor, do a little uh, science experiment. Take some heavy cream or light cream or whatever you got, milk, dump it in whiskey, tell me what happened. Curdles. Curdles and me. Immediately. Wait, 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 but that would be milk. I, cream uh, doesn't... Uh, no, cream is... No, cream is... Are you fucking kidding me? That's the, that stuff... You would have like 15 seconds to drink a cowboy. And then, and then you'd be chewing a cowboy. Cement mixer is what they call it in uh, some circles. It's gross. There's another one too where people take... Uh, they take a shot of really high proof alcohol and they drop cream into it and it curdles and then uh, they put grenadine on top of it. And that's called like a fetus. Oh no. Something to order for your friends the next time you're out of the bar. All right, so there's no origin for the cowboy listed online, but Bailey's was only introduced in 1974 by Gilby's of Ireland and has become popular around the holidays and, you know, you usually mix it with coffee. Do you, do you not like the Bailey's? Bailey's is fine. How do you yeah. not like fucking Bailey's? It just tastes like... It's like a Coke. You can't do anything with it. You just like, oh, I guess I'll put some in my coffee, but I'm not going to get drunk. Here's something I actually use Bailey's for. So I made my own uh, coffee booze. So what you do is you buy some Everclear and then you infuse it with like vanilla bean and like cold brew coffee. And you just kind of let it sit around for a long time. And you take that and if you drink it straight, well, it's fine. But if you want to cut the harshness of the alcohol, you add a little Bailey's in there, shoot it down. Good to go. It's good shit, man. Anyways, if you hate Bailey's, would you like a cowboy? I don't know, maybe. Irish whiskey in itself has a unique flavor, being that's often aged in things like sherry casks. This was done by the Irish specifically to avoid British taxation on whiskey. So fun fact there. So what does that mean? It's Asian sherry cask. Irish whiskey is sweeter. That's yeah, it. I don't like it. If I'm being completely honest. I, just, I mean, I don't mind Bailey's, but Irish whiskey, there's something about it where, I, I mean, like, okay, like Jameson, it's like, all right, that's fine. Tell them do. I'm like, eh, I don't care about this anymore. So basically, it's just going to be whiskey and heavy cream. It's whiskey and heavy cream. That's called a tummy ache. That's what it should be called. Not a cowboy. Tummy ache. We learned that Gren's status is he's an escaped convict and his bounty is now worth double because the statute of limitations is about to pass, which is what the fuck kind of weird future is that? What kind of dystopian nightmare are we living in? Is this a game show? I no longer know how the universe works. I don't know either. Judy can't get enough of Gren's good looks, by the way, which we don't get a lot out of Judy on the on the Punch and Judy show here. You know, if you listen while uh, uh, Jet and the bartender are talking, she still is going on about how good he looks. It's really hilarious. Yeah, and, and this is because I don't think she's ever like harped on about a bounty like this before. So she's got like a mega crush. But my favorite part about this scene is just Jet's reaction learning that well let's just play the clip hey listen can you turn that thing off <laughs> calm down sorry about that don't worry that guy passed out on the bar over there as a cop yeah and what does that mean actually there's a bounty on my head too this place is a hideout for all kinds of fugitives that's fascinating so you can rest easy no worries who me just so good. Can we take another moment just acknowledge the set design here? Look at all the different angles that they're using inside of this bar and so many new sets. Like if there's one thing you could say about last episode, it all took place on the spaceship and yes, we did see new environments, but it was places we already kind of understood. This doesn't look like anything we've seen in the series previously. So a cozy looking dive bar. Really impressive. We return to Faye walking through a darkened alleyway. Really fantastic low angle shot as she's running through a puddle. And she's actually disappointed that she doesn't have anybody to punch. No one's chasing after her. But then the gang shows up and they surround her. 
I guess uh, this is more super fay that we saw from Walt Trevinas. She is now someone that will be willing to take on an entire room full of people. I still don't understand that. That doesn't make any I, sense. I, yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan, personally. I, I, not that she couldn't, but that I just need that escalation rather than just being like, I'm a coward. Actually, I can beat up everyone. Yeah, it's it's not really who she is as a character. She's a, a gambler and a swindler and a grifter. Yeah, and she's really good at it. Well, I guess sometimes she's really good at it. Anyway, some guy throws a punch at her and so she kicks him in the back of the head, which <laughs> Which is awesome. But too bad for the next guy. It's that boss guy that we saw a spike knockout. He's about to punch Faye. And Grin shows up and just nails him. Just nails him with the saxophone case. It is so disgusting. You can just imagine his jaw just shattering Mortal Kombat style. Oh, I love it. Uh, by the way, in case you're curious, Gren is likely playing a tenor saxophone, but it's easily confused with an alto saxophone because they look, uh, well, nearly identical. As you'll know, the tenor sax has a rich, deep, almost velvety sound that we're listening to throughout this episode. But the alto sax, which I believe is in the intro tank of Cowboy Bebop, that's an alto sax. It has a more coarse tone, which means that it sounds out better from the rest of the band. There's seriously no right or wrong answer, of course. Anyway, Gren grabs Faye and they run off to his apartment and we see a series of panning, establishing shots. The first are of a series of multi-story buildings and uh, there's snow coming down over a bridge. Almost looks like old Brooklyn if you think about it. And the second is an establishing shot of Gren's apartment where we see a piano and sheet music and uh, a packed bookshelf, presumably of, uh, of music. And Faye is hanging up her jacket and there's a uh, clock in the background and Faye and Gren are having this playful exchange where he questions why Faye isn't worried about him murdering her. She picks up that music box that we're going to see later in the episode and starts playing with it. And Gren picks it up and says, oh no, I'm sorry, it's broken. Now here's what I want to know. Was the music box broken? Because we hear it play later on, or is it already armed with the explosives that are going to go off in Vicious's spaceship? So when Faye's just going, oh, it's this little device right over here. Did she nearly kill herself and Gren? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe. Well, give me a definitive answer right here. We we need we need our uh, Wulong Club I, cannon. I, I actually don't know. I, I didn't I didn't really think about it like that. Um, I, how I mean, great would it be if that's how it geez. ended? Just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go with it's not broken, but it doesn't have anything to do with the explosives. So he's gonna yeah. be putting the explosives in later because it's a very small box. Do you think he's got like that stuff from uh, Decker from uh, Episode Eight? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Little orange stuff they puts in there. Okay, let's get horny, everybody. Hell is yeah. This, okay, is this a horny scene? I think this is a hella horny scene. Is this where we see anime boobs for the first time? No. Well, yes, but that's later. Oh God, we have to talk about that. We'll get into that because I, mm, whatever. Uh, before we do, of course, real quick, Gren is mixing what appears to be hot water and vodka, which you could say is a variation of a hot toddy. Would you agree Ew. there? Yeah, that's gross though. What, you don't like hot toddies? No, I like hot toddies. I don't like fucking hot water and vodka. Ugh. Well, vodka is, if you're having a good potato vodka, is actually uh, yeah. much better when it's warm. Warm, like room temperature, not boiling. This is the difference between Japan and America because they're like, ah, sake, you heat it up. So they do heat up more uh, alcohols than we do. I, it's, that's No, there's no point you're burning off all the alcohol what are you doing to yourself here you're ruining your drink well actually more importantly uh you are creating an evaporation process that removes a lot of the ethanol so it reduces your chance of hangover clearing out your nostrils whatever anime neil degrasse tyson and also a uh, hot toddy is uh, is that brandy if i'm not mistaken uh, you can make it with brandy or whiskey it doesn't make a difference i always thought it was brandy that's because you live in wisconsin and you assholes put brandy in everything that is so damn true you know who else drinks brandy harry nelson yeah Literally no one else. Harry Nelson did. <laughs> yeah. Harry Nielsen, the state of Wisconsin, nowhere. I'm going to drop a knowledge bomb on you. What's the most popular brand of brandy 
in the entire world. Palmasan. That's absolutely incorrect. The answer is Corbell. Oh, of course, Corbell. Now, let me tell you something about Corbell. There are two Corbell factories in the United States, okay? One is for the great state of Wisconsin. All of their production, all of their brandy goes right here to Wisconsin. You know what the other factory does? Everywhere else. Literally everywhere else. Hey, Wisconsin out drinks the country of Germany, baby. So, Brandy, it's for Wisconsin. And only for Wisconsin. Yeah, and Harry Nielsen and also my great grandma. Well, I, going back to the show, think that sounds fantastic to have some very good vodka and some hot water. I'm going to make you drink that and watch your face. Uh, we see a series of lingering shots over her face. <sighs> Sweaty body. You're a strange one, aren't you? You think so? I don't know why I'm telling you all this. I feel like I'm in a confession booth. You're not a preacher by any chance, are you? No. You want to take a shower? No, thanks. Could be peeping toms around here. Make sure you're not one of them. Well, I can't really guarantee that now. <laughs> you know, Gren says early on that men, or no, women are not his style, but I don't know. There seems to, even if it's one-sided here, I feel there's a strong sexual tension between Gren and Faye. You don't seem to, you feel that? I, I think it's set up that way, but as sort of a misdirection for the audience, uh, because, you know, the reveal uh, about who Gren really is as a person hasn't happened yet. I think Gren is specifically set up this way as just being androgynous. We don't know if Gren's into men or women specifically because, you know, the the direction in this episode is telling us one thing, but Gren is telling us something else, so we don't know who's more reliable. Or maybe he's asexual. We shouldn't uh, cut that out. Yeah, and then even when we have the big reveal, God damn it. which we'll talk about, it, it doesn't really change any of that at all. <laughs> Absolutely none of it. But I do think, like, just for a moment, just to talk about, like, the, the sexual tension being there, I think it is maybe perhaps a little bit more one-sided in, in some capacity. I think it's Faye who's, like, really, you know, horning it up in this moment. And I think the reason she's doing it is because she knows nothing's going to happen. And if you think about it, like, look at what, what Faye does all day long, the places she has to go, and the way that apparently men treat her. They always fight over her. If she were to actually flirt with any other guy, it would go to zero to a hundred. Remember in uh, Heavy Metal Queen where she just, you know, she flirts with uh, fake Decker for a moment and right away he's like, I'm all yours, babe. Like right away. She never can flirt. She can never express any sort of just like, you know, meaningless, you know, uh, sexual tension. Well, and it's, yeah, she's not good at flirting, but the way that she's designed and, and the way the camera lingers on her. I mean, God, she dresses like someone attacked April O'Neil with a wood chipper. Okay. like I'm just, But this is also why I hate sexy fae fan art. It's because it just, they don't understand. For her, uh, she doesn't seem like she's a very submissive sexual being. She seems someone that's very proactive when she's feeling something. And I don't know, this scene means a lot to me because she can finally relax and be herself and not have to worry that something's going to happen. She can have this innocent moment uh, with this person that has already said, doesn't care for women. And I think, uh, you know, he plays along because, I don't know, there's a there's something beyond gender here. There's like an emotional connection between these two. But, uh, you know, Gren does say, like, you left because you were afraid they were going to abandon you. What do you say about that? Do you think that's an accurate assessment of Faye's psychology? Yeah. Faye always runs. When is Faye not running? Because she's afraid of people leaving her? Yeah, I think so. It probably comes from a place of abandonment because she's always on her own because she is afraid that someone's going to just stab her in the back eventually. You know, it's, like, it's the old adage of you can't trust anyone, basically. So... Don't don't get too close to anyone. Ooh, how does this compare to, to uh, the lesson that she gave us last episode? Oh, yeah. She told us not to trust anyone. See? She knows. Say it's all throwaway episodes and filler of Cowboy Bebop, but come on. 
It all comes together. Gren goes off to take a shower while uh, Faye enjoys another drink. And uh, <laughs> you can tell this was written in the 90s because Gren gets a phone call and the answering machine picks it up. <laughs> Hell yeah, future space answering machine. They co- they've come back into fashion. They're cool again. As soon as Faye hears Vicious's voice, she freaks out, which I think is kind of weird. It's almost kind of like what's happening with Spike when he hears Vicious's name. Because on the one hand, I would be like, oh, well, she was kidnapped. That must have been so traumatizing for her because she was freaking out when she saw that stuff happening to Spike. Then at the same time, I remember her running around and almost getting shot and being like, knock that off, you know? Yeah. So after that big reveal with Faye and the Vicious phone call, we like we cut right to Spike sneaking up on Vicious, and he asks him if he's seeing Julia behind his back, basically, uh, which is fun because that's the other thing that's sort of implied here between this and episode five is that there's like something happened between them and her, and there was a whole thing that we're not privy to yet. And then the douchebag Lynn shows up and says hi to Spike. <laughs> Ugh, Lynn. Spike seems to know him. Like, like he says, oh, you've gotten bigger. And Vicious tells Spike that Lynn doesn't work for him anymore. Let's talk about this for a moment. Spike having anyone work underneath him. I can't imagine Spike having any real responsibilities in life. No. I don't know what that looks like. No. And the idea that he's in charge. He's in charge of what someone else does. That is the part that just blows my mind. Uh, do you think Spike would actually be good at it? No, absolutely not. Why not? Are you, uh, what about his personality says that management is his thing? Maybe uh, they could- Or planning? I don't know. It's like they could name all of the duties Julia. And every time he hears that name, he freaks out and he does it. Uh, yeah. And then when it's time for him to punch out, they- It's like, like did you wash the dishes? Uh, no, I'm not going to wash the dishes. Wait, tell Spike- to wash the Julia and do the it. The Julia's in the sink. <laughs> the Julia's in the sink. All the little Julia's, the flat Julia's, the, the little mug Julia's. Uh, Vicious tells Spike that Julia actually did visit Blue Crow at one point, at least in the past, and he readies his sword. Spike aims his gun, but Lynn, just like he swore to the elders, gets in front and protects Vicious and shoots Spike down. Ain't even messing around here. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, okay, I, I do want to talk about how great the animation is. The idea of that feather that's falling down. Also, because all these crows... Uh, I think that's where people get the idea that Vicious owns a crow. Using Spike getting shot as a cliffhanger only to reveal that's a tranquilizer later on. Why would they do that? What is it? Like, are they Batman villains at this point? Why would they shoot him? Just be like, nah, we knocked him out. <laughs> where Vicious literally picked him up by the face. Why are you still alive? <laughs> Threw him out of a church to be like, yeah, let's use our, our knockout dart. No, I, I wasn't sure about that either. It didn't make any sense to me. Maybe it's because since Lynn does know him, he like he's loyal to Vicious, but he didn't want to kill Spike. That's the only thing I can think of. Hmm. Well, Steve, we are we're finally here. The moment that I did not want to talk about. And when we were talking all the way back, do you remember all the way back on uh, Walter Venus? And I was like, you know, they they are so progressive in so many ways. And then Ed, remember Ed? I'm like, well, you see this this non-binary person. How wonderful is that. And I said, oh, but I'm going to give him shit later on. <sighs> this, this is the scene. This is the scene right here because Faye assumes, rightfully so, because she hears that Vicious is looking for uh, Grin, that they're working together. So she gets her gun out. Animation's gorgeous, by the way, of her, you know, uh, pressing her body up against the wall and then pulling back the curtain. All this animation is so good. And then uh, we see that uh, Grin has a pair of Perfect, perfect breast. This is the most perfect, firm triple G. So I would, I would say maybe, a, maybe a, a C or a B. But they are perfect. They're, they're large. They're very large. <laughs> The reason I'm bringing this up is because she, of course, goes, oh, woman, because she sees breasts and then she sees his dick. Oh, what, what are you? <laughs> she can't handle it. Which, you know, I, the entire scenario is a bit alarming. Uh, I'll sure. give her that. Sure. And then we get this moment where 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 Grin is, is, is uh, you know, arching over her saying, I am neither one or whatever. And it almost looks like Alien 3. 
You know where the where the xenomorph is. We're bringing up Alien a lot lately. Yeah, it, it's it it is kind of like predatory and monstrous the way that they frame Gren, and I I don't think that's again in line with the character. No, and the fact that Spike got hit with a with a knockout dart. Gren has a pair of tits, and they're gonna say and scene. Doesn't that make you want to come back next week? Like, no, you've not, you didn't build anything. That's just the random horse shit right there. We're, we're going to talk about why this exists, because this is taking a lot of influence from a very particular film that has aged very poorly in a lot of respects. Is it Glenn or Glenda? No. <laughs> I love Glenn or Glenda. He had hair thin like a woman's. Well, the first thing that, that ran through my mind was... Haha ha, anime, because when I think of anime, that's what I think of. So, sorry, anime fans. This, for some reason, this episode, like, every cliche and preconceived notion I have about anime is sort of summed up in a lot of this episode. Now, what I want to know is, how did this air? Like, how did this air on TV Tokyo? What happened on Adult Swim? No cuts on TV Tokyo, as far as I know, because it was it was airing at, like, 2 o'clock in the morning, which sounds ridiculous, but that's actually not uncommon for more adult-oriented anime. Okay. Which is why uh, there's a lot of simulcasts that occur here in America at a more convenient time. Oh, fun. Uh, in in uh, Adult Swim, they just did a crop shot zoom in. They just put a pillow over it. <laughs> yeah. Put a pillow over it? So they crop shot zoom in, yeah. and then... Yeah. But so it's just implied that Faye sees boobies. Yeah, because it's just as a woman, and then, oh, like, oh, yeah, yeah, so okay. there you go. Okay. Well, well, there was a movie that was very, very, very popular in the early 90s that also played with gender. And when I mean playing with it, you could almost call it a game. The Crying Game. Steve, have you ever seen The Crying Game? No. Oh, God. I have to, I have to do the heavy lifting on this horse shit? Yeah. I mean, I know a lot about movies, but I don't know a lot about movies I don't give a fuck about. Well, I had IFC in the early 2000s, so I saw The Crying Game, okay? The Crying Game is, uh... Nah, I got nothing. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay, The Crying Game, released in 1992. It was an Irish independent film which won multiple awards in the film circuit, and Lair became a huge box office hit thanks to its extremely popular ad campaign that kept hinting about a secret. There's this woman that has a secret. You'll never guess what it is. Listen, there's something I should tell you. You've heard of this? Are you going to tell me what's wrong? No, not here. Well, I mean, this is somewhat controversial. Uh, but before we get to that, of course, uh, this movie also helped establish Miramax as a serious Hollywood player. The production company would be purchased by Disney shortly after the release of The Crying Game. So what is the movie about? At the time, it was a highly contemporary plot revolving around the ongoing conflict between the IRA and the British government. And just go Google that if you want to know more about the conflict. But the plot gradually shifts to being about an IRA member who falls in love with a jazz singer who is later revealed to be a transgender woman. And her birth sex is used to be a shocking twist halfway through the film. Before devolving into a series of people holding guns and being really dramatic and people being shot. Eh, anyway, the film is held in very high regard in Britain, but most people outside of Britain have kind of forgotten about it. It's a very well-made movie. There's a lot of good cinematography. I love the sets. Good performances, you could say. Uh, especially because it was very low budget. But in 2018, hearing like the big twist is that someone is transgender is like, you know, it almost sounds like you'll never find out the shocking twist. They're pot smokers. It's like, what? What is this? Dope fiends, the whole lot yeah, of them. Yeah, but I mean, okay, at the end of the film, I'm going to spoil the crying game. Sorry about it. The guy actually sticks with his uh, girlfriend and they uh, fall in love. But also when he finds out about like her genitalia, uh, he actually vomits in a toilet. It's all very dramatic. It was for 1992 and you have to forgive it for certain things. And it was progressive in some ways, but like today it just looks like it seems very, very insulting. You know what the most progressive version of this that I've seen? Nah. Uh, you ever seen Wild Zero? No. Are you familiar with the band? 
Guitar Wolf. No. Okay, Guitar Wolf is a Japanese rockabilly garage rock band. They actually played here in Milwaukee not too long ago. Uh, it was one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my entire life, but they all wear like sunglasses and leather jackets like they dress like the Ramones, basically. And for some reason, in like 1997, they decided, let's make a movie. They released this movie called Wild Zero, and it's about the band Guitar Wolf, and they're riding around on their motorcycles and being cool guys. And there's another guy who's not so cool, and then there's zombies, because I guess you needed an antagonist here. And the guy who's not that cool, he falls in love with this girl, and so Guitar Wolf and this kind of nerdy guy are fighting the zombies and saving the girl, and there's this moment... Wait, is this a Japanese movie? Yes. I have seen this. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Exactly. So, there's this awesome moment where, I guess it's like the crying game, in the reveal, the reveal is the nerdy guy finds out that this girl he's been lusting after isn't a girl after all. And his initial reaction is... But then Guitar Wolf literally like w- one of the members of Guitar Wolf just like dives through the ceiling and just goes, no, love knows no bounds or genders. And then after that, they just stay together. It's fucking great. That's how the crying game should have ended. Although in the case of that film, the the person that he thought was a woman is in fact not identifying as a woman. That was not to imply in any way that, you know. Exactly. Like there, I guess there was an Ooh, deception like in the crying game, but this is, I guess she's just sort of androgynous looking. I don't know. I just, I get kind of annoyed by this scene because uh here's the thing about gren um what is this ad what does this come back to what is this reference like nothing we don't learn anything from the scene it does not add any sort of complications to his characters no. i mean all, all we find out is and i don't know how this relates back to the planet itself because it feels like there's this whole thing like this planet and this storyline and the idea of women, like, they're all intertwined, but it's such messy storytelling that it's hard to say what they're trying to say. But it was, what, like a military experiment on Gren? They were like, yeah, I came back from the war and they pumped me full of drugs. Like, is this like a shitty, like, 70s Vietnam exploitation film? Like, what, again... What does that add to this character? Let me tell you, the women out there that uh, maybe they want to have some uh, enhancements to their physique, they would be running to the pharmacist to get this drug. They would be running. They'd be like, hell yeah, let's do this. And I thought they were going to expand on this more. Like, oh, like maybe these soldiers came back and they're all fucked up Mm -hmm. and they were in like the, whatever the VA hospital is on this moon. And And now they're challenging the concept of gender. no, not that. I figured it was like the government, like maybe all the women died off on this planet for some reason. That's why they're not there because they never say why there's no women. So it's like, oh, we'll make women by pumping these soldiers full of, like, I thought there was going to be- That's a horrible idea for a movie. <laughs> no, 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 but I'm just saying, like, I thought that was where they were going, maybe? Uh, that, that sounds profoundly upsetting. Yeah, and and instead, they just, they don't do anything with it. That's the thing, it's not a part of who Gren is. Yeah, it's not a part of who Gren is, it's not crucial to the plot in any way. But he, he's definitely emotionally affected by, oh wait, no he's not. No, no he is he's no not. Way. He's emotionally affected by a lot of stuff, but not that for some reason. So, they ended an episode with Spike getting shot point blank, and we see a pair of tits, and none of it pays off. No, so none of is, it matters. That is my biggest issue with uh, this episode, is that cliffhanger. Even those anime titties, you don't even pay it off, what are you doing? I mean, later on, Gren is gonna be like, I'm sending a woman out there. But the thing is, Gren has a very slender frame. Yeah. He would have been fine. We already talked about this. Gren looks like every bad guy from a JRPG God. that's but Vicious like... in the hood, he'd look exactly the same. Exactly. Uh, they all have the same silhouette. Damn. Okay, we've given this episode a lot of shit, and there's still things to come. But, I do want to talk about the vocal performance of Gren, Dave Thomas. No, not the sandwich guy from Wendy's. What? Square patties, fresh, never frozen. <sighs> no, we're talking about a different Dave Thomas. He's the voice of Gren, who is also in Metal Gear Solid 3 as The Sorrow, and uh, doesn't do a lot of acting does mostly commercial work like for Wendy's. <laughs> Come on. 
His next speech is about comrades, and I think it's just perfect. I think this guy should be uh, doing uh, audiobooks of Hemingway novels. I love this dude's timber. Let's listen to him talk about comrades. You said that you didn't need comrades, but I'm attracted to that word to the point of tears. You see, that's what we were at Titan. We were all comrades. Why are you going to see Vicious? Didn't you say he framed you? I want to find out if he did. He'll murder you. Death does not frighten me. You're lying. Either way, I don't have long to live. Why did you bring me here? Maybe I wanted to be with someone. I, I don't know. All right, so here's where we get a you just help someone flashback. Ooh. So the war on Titan, baby. Not to be confused with Attack on Titan, which is something I know is an anime, but I've never seen it. You might like All it. All right, so it looks like this war on Titan was actually very reminiscent to World War One. so it's got kind of like a uh, little Lawrence of Arabia, a little Paz of Glory, a little bit of maybe All Quiet on the Western Front. Absolutely, especially with the desaturated color. There's no coincidence right there. Oh, sure, yeah. And, and the use of silhouettes, which saves them money, but uh, it looks just like it. Yeah. Actually, there's a moment when they're looking up and they're seeing people running along a hill. Obviously, there's a lot of things that take inspiration for different things, but it looks like the Dance of Death from the Seventh Seal. Like, it literally looks like that moment. It's only up there for like two seconds, but huh. I wouldn't be surprised if they snuck that in there. I didn't even notice that. You know what's weird, though? We never actually see what these people are fighting. We just see the giant machines in the distance. I just yeah. It's actually more scary that way. Yeah, well, I guess that's kind of how World War One was. I mean, you're just in a trench shooting at other trenches. But it is kind of weird to think that it's it's the future, and this is how they're fighting wars in the future, like in trenches. Well, yeah, because the hostile environment, they just, uh, like, they're landing on, on Titan. They don't even know how to handle that sort of atmosphere, I guess. But I do want to talk about, for just like a moment here, who would even be fighting who? Because we see a very peaceful galaxy... I can't imagine that there was some larger conflict outside of Titan. Is this some sort of oil war or something like that? Some sort of resources that they need? I don't know. I mean, they don't they don't really get into it. I, I don't think we're privy to anything. They just expect us to believe that there's a war, which is believable. That's human nature. We just like to kill each other. Well, yeah, I'll take the idea on a walk. You know, like, where do, where do you think this is come from? Because I think I bet it's like two different corporations or something like that. Yeah, the uh, the war of 2035 when the armies of Jeff Bezos and... Uh, PepsiCo. And Pepsi and the Pepsi Company. Yeah, I was there for the yum war. <laughs> Vicious being there, it's really curious to me. Like, I wonder if he's there as a, a member of the Red Dragon Syndicate. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, because I'm like, Vicious seems like he's always been kind of a dick. Mm. So was he drafted? Is there a draft? Is it like a Venus draft? Or is it just a moon draft? What's going on? Well, he must have been on Mars with Spike, and I wouldn't be surprised, because, you know, you've seen all those um, those mobster movies like The Godfather. All of those people are, are World War II veterans in those movies, so perhaps it's a similar scenario, just like that, where they sent him off for war to become a spy, because he is a spy, and he's using that music box, which, of course, he's very nice, mm -hmm. and he gives to Grin which Grinlayer finds out is a transmitter. Yeah, it is kind of interesting, though, that there's no large-scale, like, galaxy-wide space conflict or big bad out there. That's what I like about Cowboy Bebop is because it's not like a Star Wars or a Star Trek where there's just like, oh, and then there's all these evil bad things going on that we have to address. And it's like, no, there's just, you know, small little conflicts and just little tiny interesting corners of the universe. Well, actually, uh, you were talking a little bit about uh, Callisto earlier. Let's talk about the real 
moon Titan, which orbits Saturn. It's about 50% bigger than Earth's moon and about 40% bigger than Mercury, but the most interesting fact about Titan is the clear evidence of liquid. Now, we've been talking about this for a lot of planets. We say, oh, they, they have these dense, salty oceans right in the middle there. Well, that's assessments, that's evaluations, that's estimates from scientists. But we know for a fact there's liquid methane on Titan. There may even be life. Does that mean the whole planet smells like farts? Oh, God, no wonder they're just jumping into those ditches, avoiding those explosions. Do you think those explosions are just someone just trying to smoke a cigarette? <laughs> but how do we know so much? Well, in 2005, NASA's Hygens uh, probe landed on the surface of Titan. But the real story is it's two and a half hour long descent through a thick, hazy atmosphere and spotting evidence of methane erosion. In other words, it would not be very nice to live on and it would be quite mountainous. And yeah, it might be like this. Now, my estimation as to why there was even a scorpion on there that almost kills Gren, like who the fuck decided scorpions are something we need to take to space? We can leave those the hell home. I think possibly including natural creatures indigenous to Earth are speeding up the process, making it inhabitable for human beings. Of course you'd send uh, a scorpion to Titan. You know why? Uh, Did you know that the scorpion is the only animal that you can legally send, like, alive through the mail? What? Yeah. Why? Also, fun fact, there are websites where you can buy giant scorpions that are alive and they'll just mail them to you. Why? I don't know. It's just a thing. I feel bad for the scorpion. Yeah, so here's what I want to do. If I ever have disposable income, I'm just going to randomly mail scorpions to people I know. Well, don't uh, don't mail one near Vicious because he will throw a knife at it and chop it right in half. And I think that's the moment, you know, that's the second right there where Grin's like, whoa, someone saved my life. And uh, it just, it changes him forever. But then of course, Grin goes into prison because the music box they picked up, it turns out was a transmitter. And so uh, he has to take these drugs that give him perfect breasts, perfect Perky, firm breasts. Still not letting that go. It's ridiculous. What the fuck is this? It's just saying, oh, my hormones went out of whack. What? Happens all the time. Were they just giving you estrogen? That's weird if they were just doing that. Listen, you're thinking about this too hard. They wanted space boobies. They gave us space boobies. No one thought about this. So this, of course, is all being told to Faye. Faye is very upset that Gren is going to leave. She even points a gun at him. We get that great animation of trying to shoot him, and he just rolls right up. It's nothing to him. He was in the army, after all. He subdues her, ties her up, and leaves her right on the bed. Why does Faye care so much? Why is she so concerned about Gren? Is this because someone's actually abandoning her? Yeah, I, I think it's literally a callback to exactly what Gren said, that she has abandonment issues. So they told us, and now we're seeing that in action. Hey, Colin! Do you remember that guy, Jet? Yeah, oh yeah, he used to be in uh, Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, well, he's, he's here again. Um... <laughs> <laughs> He's still looking for Faye at Rester's place. And the bartender tells him where Gren lives, because that's a totally normal thing. <laughs> Are you sure it was this woman? Oh, yeah. It's been six months since I saw a woman in the flesh. And two years since I saw a girl that good looking. Trust me, I wouldn't make a mistake about that. Man, I sure wouldn't want to live around here. She sat over there talking to Gren. Julia used to sit in that same seat. Julia? About two years ago, she wandered in out of the blue. A month later, she disappeared. Yeah? What kind of girl was she? She was a real woman. Just, I love that that bartender's mopping up the place. Like, this could have been any sort of setting, you know? This could have just been him serving drinks like, yeah, I remember her or whatever, but, you know, it's a quieter moment. This next part, this is actually my favorite part of episode 13, or one of my favorite parts. It's it's a fun, like, gag in an otherwise very serious episode. When Jet gets lost on his way to the apartment, uh, he asks from, for directions from that crooked, like, gang leader guy in the, in the glasses. It's called the Orlando Apartments. Do you know where it is? Eh. I don't know nothing. Ask somebody else. Hey, come on. 
Forget it. I don't want anything to do with foreigners ever again. I'm just asking for directions. I'm gonna go find an honest job somewhere. What's up with him? This whole episode is so serious, but it's so dumb at the same time. And this character keeps popping up and getting his ass kicked. And he's and he's finally like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to talk to any more foreigners. I'm tired of having my ass kicked. And what happens? He falls into a garbage truck. <laughs> but I mean, like, what's... It's just a stupid gag. It's a, but the weird thing is we don't even see him fall into the garbage truck. We see Jet looking at a garbage truck. Then we see Jet and his face and then hearing... Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, at least it's good to know that they have some sort of, uh, you know, waste management service on this planet. Because it does look a little grimy, if you ask me. Finally, Jet finds Gren's place. He bursts down the door with his gun drawn. He is not checking his corners, though. Come on, Jet. What are you doing? He finds Faye on the bed, assuming the worst has happened. But Faye says that Gren is like, no one else. Uh, sure. Okay. Whatever, Faye. We get yeah another mon montage just like we did in episode 5 after Spike was thrown through the cathedral and we can hear Vicious warning Spike to be careful when he's with that woman. Who's that woman? Probably Julia. I mean, come on. And then a woman's voice saying that they are going to kill him. Spike says his left eye can only see the past and we see the translucent green eye from episode 6. Do you think that this is actually for the audience that has been keeping up with Bebop? I feel like this montage, because there's no music or anything, it's just some random reused scenes they are hodgepodge together. This is for the TV Tokyo audience, is it not? I think it was intentional because episode 5 was a while ago. You gotta imagine, this was two months ago almost at this point. Okay. So yeah, it's just your standard refresher montage. Now it's useful for the people of TV Tokyo who never episode five because they're definitely like what the fuck is going on and this gives it the tiniest bit of context but yeah i I think it's a standard recap so spike wakes up and he kind of chats it up with a crow uh which is why i think people confuse vicious's bird as a crow and they're also hovering around the church in episode five everybody thinks vicious has a fucking crow no you can listen to episode five if you want to know what he has doesn't have a crow he's got a bird thing Oh, oh but you know what spike does He smokes his eighth cigarette. Hell yeah. This one's weird looking too. I know how we always comment on his cigarettes are crooked, but this one, it's like, it feels like they, like the cylinder of the cigarette is just missing a chunk for some reason. Why does Spike care so much about Vicious anyway? Why is he so concerned about him? Because he's seeking him out right now. You know, he's getting in the swordfish and looking for him. Is this because he's still mad about Mao? No, I, I think it's something else. It's clearly some Julia stuff that we still don't know anything about. And that's the weird thing. Once the Julia stuff and the Vicious stuff started popping up in these episodes, I was like, oh, cool. All that shit from episode five that didn't make any sense. Maybe some of that'll get cleared up. Maybe we'll learn a little bit more about Spike's backstory. But we really don't. Jed calls into Spike, informing him that Grin is tied to the Julia deal and offers him a place back on the Bebop if he catches him. Does Jed really care about this bounty at all? Because everything he's saying only benefits Spike. He's giving him information about the Julia deal because he knows that's what Spike is looking for. And he just says, well, and if you do the things that you're already going to do, I'll let you back on the Bebop. Yeah, Jed is a total softy. No no backbone. Come on, Jed. I want him to be a firm father figure, and he's not. Yeah, that's only the uh, Japanese dub. Jet's also got his hands full because he's carrying Faye's red ship back to the Bebop with his ship, the Hammerhead. Uh, Another touch that didn't need to be here. They could have been flying together back to the Bebop, but I love that. No, Faye ran out of gas. And now Jed has to carry the ship back up, and this is where she reveals that um, there's only 20,000 Wulongs in the safe, which considering that most of the bounties have been in an excess of over 1.5 million, 
That's nothing. I guess if that, if that was like yen, it would be like 200 bucks. <laughs> Can we talk for a second about the shot though? That wonderful shot where we get the point of view of Faye and she's just looking down at the city as she's being carried up into space. It actually gave me a bit of vertigo. I just, I love that movement. We get a really interesting small moment where Vicious calls Grin and says that the meeting is uh, going to be on the skyscraper and Grin says that he's going to send a woman in his place. Vicious says that he's disappointed because he actually would have liked to see Grin. Do you think he's really disappointed? He's not a guy that mints his words. No. Vicious is over there and he's talking to uh, the elders and when he walks away he's like god I hate these old people if he says to Grant I, I really wish I could have seen you do you think he's being honest no absolutely not oh come on he doesn't seem like an honest guy plus he doesn't have any what What has he ever shown a single positive emotion when has he ever lied though he's brooding and he's and he's angry and that's the, that's all he does but does he lie is he a liar like he's obviously a murderous psychopath we're not going to dispute that uh-huh. there's no incentive in this moment to be like oh I wish I could have seen you man I don't know I guess it kind of depends on given you know, you have this this classic situation of like the standoff, this exchange between Gren and, and Vicious that takes place. And then, of course, like the last time we saw one of these exchanges, uh, things go south. In order to say Vicious was being serious and he wanted to see Gren, we would have to assume that Vicious was looking to kill Gren. Uh, I don't even know about that. Because like even Vicious, like at the, uh, when he walks away before uh, Gren reveals himself, he says, send my regards to Gren. Like he doesn't need to say these things. I think there really is, a, even though he betrayed him, I think that that, that idea of being a comrade really does exist. Mm-hmm. I think he really does want to kill Spike though. I don't think he wants to kill Gren. That's fair. Uh, by the way, the scenes leading up to the commercial break are set to the song Words That We Couldn't Say, which is sung by Steve Conte. Of course, he performed the song Rain in episode five. It's kind of remarkable that this song just, it sounds so much like Sting in the 90s. Uh, not the wrestler, the musician. I thought the exact same thing. I was like, is this a shitty fucking Sting song? It totally is. Specifically, it's a ripoff of the uh, album 1993's Ten Summoner's Tales, which, okay, we can make fun of Sting, but like, he took a risk. He started putting out jazz albums uh, instead of just regular pop. I don't know. Is elevator music really that risky? I like Brand New Day. I'm not going to apologize for it. I dream of rain. Is that him as well? Yeah, fucking Desert Rose. It's the same album. Wow. That's a good album. It's not. I don't know. I think Under any circumstances. I don't know. I think you got to go back. Fuck Sting. Fuck everything he's done. Wow. Except for the album we put out last year with Shaggy. Shaggy. I like Sting. Whatever. And I also like the song Words That We Couldn't Say. Steve Conte. Very very good vocalist. If you want to know more about him, check out episode five where we talk about how he joined the New York Dolls. By the way, the uh, commercial cue card is the line from the intro. The work which becomes a new genre itself will be called Cowboy Bebop. Does this episode live up to this? Because it really does feel almost like a new genre. It's not quite noir. It's not quite action. I'm not sure what you would call Jupiter Jazz. I don't think so. I, I think it's I, it's got to be tongue in cheek because it's like it's so brazen. <laughs> it's just like, this is how fucking cool we are. I thought it was just some like old quote from an old jazz musician or something like that. Like, I I didn't know what it was. I think they're being cheeky. I agree with you right there. But like, yeah, but oh, yes, are they being cheeky? Absolutely. Do I think that Cowboy Bebop is some like groundbreaking shit? No, it's it's just a very postmodern action show. I am going to have to disagree with you there. Wait, you think you think it's a new genre? For 1998, yeah. I'm going to give it. And what is the genre that it is? I will is? tell you some other time because I don't want to spoil it. It's true. I've been thinking about it. It is not a new genre at all. It's a mishmash of a lot of established tropes. The reason Cowboy Bebop exists and works is because of what's so familiar and how it takes the familiar and makes it fresh again. 
That's why Cowboy Bebop works. I will not stand to live in a world where cyberpunk is somehow a genre and Cowboy Bebop is not. Cyberpunk is a genre. That's just something that assholes say. Okay, well, let's just move on. Cyberpunk is just sci-fi, but everybody has a mohawk. Hey, Colin, do you remember Ayn? Uh, yeah, from that other show, Cowboy Bebop. Do you remember Ed? Yeah, they were. They were, I think they were in the same show together. Yeah. After all this stuff that's going on, they're just like, quick, show us the Bebop again. And they're like, hey, they're here. They're around. Wait! I think they kind of have to do that because Ed only joined in episode 9. We're in episode 13, and Ed, outside of last episode, has been very sparingly used. Mm -hmm. Not the focus on episode 10. That was all about Jet and his old girlfriend. And then last episode, of course, you know, Ed eats the thing, but, eh, you know, they just need a reminder, like, yes, there's more characters now. It feels like nothing has happened <laughs> at this point. And, and nothing really has, but the, the real meat of this episode is this encounter, this this deal, this trade-off between Gren and Vicious. So finally, finally, Gren, masquerading as a woman because he put his hood up, yeah. meets up with Vicious. And just as the deal ends, Vicious says, Tell Gren I give my regards. But then Gren reveals himself. Sets him up the bomb. Yeah, because it's, it's like Clark Kent, you know? Like, until Gren takes off the hood, who knew? And then that sets off the bomb, and then we get uh, the speech about why Gren gives a shit. And this is the comrade speech that we've been referencing. I believed in you. There was nothing to believe in. There's no need to believe By the way, the music you were just listening to uh, right there is very, very, very reminiscent of uh, Yoko Kano's previous work, uh, the brain-powered uh, soundtrack. Okay, well, here's the thing. Lin jumps in the way of the bullets. He's all like, vicious, look out, and he dies, and he falls. Thank God. Well, you know what's interesting, though? We get a perspective on the ground level of blood pouring onto the cement, just like what happened to Mao when his throat was slit. I could have sworn they used the exact same animation mm -hmm. because it's so reminiscent. It is not. This is new animation. Oh. So whenever people die in front of Vicious, that's usually what happens, I guess. Mm -hmm. Here's my thing, though. Lin is the most useless character in this entire series. Nope. Lin is the most important character of this episode. Right, tell me why. Because Lin is a soldier. Lin is a comrade, just like Grin. And the thing is that we are going to learn is that when you fall into order when you take uh when you fall into this belief system that there are like outside sources that you can trust in like comrades or whatever you're done for you're dead grin dead lynn dead their name's ryan by the way i don't think that's a coincidence vicious says literally looks at him looks at the dead body and says there is nothing in this world to believe in <laughs> before he takes off which is kind of uh dark and a little bit emo right there these spike and vicious do not follow orders clearly spike just bailed he just left the uh, order altogether, and Vicious openly comments that he's like, wow, I cannot wait until these old men, they're dead. The people that follow uh, the hierarchy, they are punished every single way, and that's and Lin has to be the first one to die because we, we need to see Grin have a more romanticized death. Yeah, sure, sure. I I guess I wouldn't say Lin's the most important character. The most important? Okay, I take that back. He's fucking lame. But, I mean, he, he certainly is good cannon fodder to prove the overarching point of the narrative. Would you consider uh, this concept? 
them to be uh, based so much in the existentialism, like every fucking cowboy YouTuber likes to say. <laughs> I mean, he literally says there's nothing in this world to believe in before taking off. It's nihilism. It's, it's, I don't think he's having a real crisis of the self. I feel like Vicious really knows himself pretty well. He knows he's a fucking dick. Uh, you're not supposed to use actual references of uh, of existentialism. You're just supposed to say it and then just imply that you know what you're talking about. That's how you do it for anime, yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I read The Stranger in eighth grade, and I just, I really feel like I can speak to this. Please watch my four-hour YouTube live stream. What about that shot where we see uh, Spike and Vicious circle around each other and they create the infinity symbol? A little on the nose, but I love it. <laughs> it's pretty fucking on the nose, yes. But yeah, most importantly is that Spike, from his ship, sees that Lin has died and just immediately yells, Lin died protecting you, Vicious. His soul is lost. And Vicious responds to him. Here's what I can't fucking figure out. Did he communicate? Did he turn on his, his communication device? No, I was thinking the exact same thing. I'm like, how are they talking to each other? Which again, this is so anime. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if any of this is true, but like every preconceived notion I have about anime, one of the other preconceived notion I have is like two people are really far away from each other and there's no way they could ever be able to hear each other, but they're yelling aggressively yeah and seem to be having a conversation is that an anime thing i grant that this is happening because we saw the communication device earlier when uh spike answered the phone call from jet i just think it's really weird like how do you know the frequency to call into he's got spike's digits well i guess they used to be friends you know also just looking at uh if we can sort of take the philosophy of each character and their spaceship the uh, vicious's ship is really haunting it's just like a floating white triangle it's really spooky looking i only think the rhombus is spooky that's the only shape that really scares me gives me the willies let's let's okay, okay but let's take it <laughs> let's take it back for just a second because the whole idea of of lynn's soul being lost and, and spike being really concerned apparently this is a philosophy that is shared by laughing bull and why not he visits laughing bull and they have that encounter and they talk about uh death so maybe he does have this sort of old spiritual belief but we saw him watch so many people die in the series so far people he cared about he saw the lovers getting killed in episode one he saw the lady actually have her guts spill out, you know, in outer space, although they were the uh, the red-eye vials. He actually saw Roko die in episode eight, and he didn't seem to have this same emotional reaction. I just think it's so bizarre for him to be concerned about the state of someone's soul. That's just where I'm like, what? Yeah, it's... That's not really his style. Wait, he even saw Mao die. He really cared about Mao. He didn't seem so worried about his soul. This whole soul thing comes out of nowhere. Uh, but uh, also speaking of coming out of nowhere, Grin flies into the dogfight, interrupting Vicious and actually taking out a missile. Uh, we see another missile that's chasing after Spike and it nearly hits him and he crashes into a building. Uh, it's a depression going on, so hopefully no one was killed working in there. This, this dogfight here. Yeah. And maybe maybe it's my nihilism don't you, coming Don't out. you dare besmirch. Maybe it's, maybe it's my nihilism. Why does Cowboy Bebop... I, I feel like they default to, eh, fuck it, dogfight. Yeah. When they don't know how to, like, really end an episode. Oh, come on, the animation's really good in this Okay, bit. that's fine. Um, insert jerk-off motion. Especially when you see the missile hit um, Grin's ship, and it has that, like, fluctuating, and the smoke is going off. It looks fantastic. But, I, okay, as good as it may look, I just, I don't see, it's another thing where I don't know why they have to do this all the time. It, well, I mean, it makes sense, at least in the case that, of course, Vicious is going to take off after a drug deal. He grabs all the red and so the only way to chase after him is with ships. Hmm. If there was any other way that they could have done this, I would go with it. But like, it does feel natural to me. Would I have preferred a different method than flying around in space? Yes, especially after episode five. We saw how good uh, the animation could be when they're not in ships and they're shooting each other. Mm -hmm. But Spike also takes out one of his missiles with his plasma uh, gun, which is super cool looking. 
I really appreciate that moment. I'm going to go buy some spaceships. Now, Vicious thinks that he's won. He thinks he can find target Spike, but then he hears the music box in the background. And we should talk about it. The song that is playing in the music box, the song that Grin is playing on his sax inside of Rester's house is a song called uh, Julia, which is half true. Because on the album itself, on the Kobe Hope album, it's Good Night, Julia is the song. And uh, this song actually repeats itself uh, over and over again, uh, especially with the closing theme. But we'll talk about that when we get there. But... The song is not just playing for fun, it's also timed to have an explosion, taking out Vicious's ship, and we see Vicious flying off towards the uh, Red Dragon home base, I guess you could say. I don't think it's their home base. You know, I, I don't really know. It's hard to grasp just how big the organization is. That ship, though, it's huge. Yeah, it seems pretty big time, so I'm gonna go with large. <laughs> Okay, big. Uh, probably my favorite animation is right here. Grin crashes his ship and Spike jumps out of the swordfish to catch up with him. And uh, you actually see Spike slip a little bit uh, on, the, on the snow. Like he can't get traction. Really small touch, but like that's just it. It's the small touches that make animation so good. Spike tells Grin that he's not sure an ambulance will even arrive there. And Grin's like, ah, don't even bother. The heroic death. <laughs> How do people in movies know that? We're like, oh, I'm not going to make it. How do they know that? They just always know that. Cowboy Bebop loves westerns and war movies, especially like 60s and 70s stuff and this is very like no just let me die like that's it's so like 1970s exploitation slash spaghetti western death you know what was really confusing for me was trying to figure out how the hell he even knew who grin was like i couldn't even understand how spike knew who he was i had to remember it was all the way back when he was talking to the crossdresser who said he plays sax at the blue crow mm -hmm. all the way back in like the very first like five minutes of episode one yeah that's he heard hears about grin and i guess all this time he's been looking for him which is just weird to me because he might have information about Julia? I don't, I don't, I don't quite get what's going on in this show. Yeah, so I guess Spike's whole motivation for this was he wanted to have a conversation with this Grin guy so he could find out more about his long-lost girlfriend. And Gren finally mentions that Julia would always ask him to play the same song, which of course was called Julia. Julia. How vain of her. She's yeah. so she's so, so vain. Yeah. Probably thinks so the vain. Song is about her. Yeah, so Gren says that he's going to die regardless, so he has an odd request and wants to ride off into the sunset here, spaghetti western style again. Gren wants to get to Titan, and Spike is like, you're not going to make it to fucking no. Titan. Your ship just got the shit blown out of it, and you crashed. What Spike ends up doing is he kind of like tows him into space, and then there's this really nice kind of quiet, somber moment where Spike releases Gren's ship, launches it towards Titan, and then you just sort of like just see the ship and you see Gren and you see it floating there. It's just for a few seconds. It's nice. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, okay. But then I, I get to thinking too, it's like, why does Gren want to go to Titan? Uh, that's just PTSD. Like, hey, remember this place where you were in a horrible war? Send me back. He wants to go back to Titan because Titan, despite all of the horrible violence, the near-death experiences, it represents order. The idea that there were comrades that were looking out for him, that he's Definitely not found anywhere else. He's a loner everywhere else he's been. This is the one place where he felt companionship. Well, we also see Spike. He rolls back up to the bebop and, uh, you know, there's that moment where Jet's like, what are you bringing in? He says nothing. He says, all right, get back in here. I love that moment. It's so touching. Oh, the prodigal son returns. And of course, we return back to Laughing Bull and uh, the small child. And we see the very opening scene again as the camera shoots off into space and uh, all the way back landing on the planet Titan. It's the journey we're taking with Grin. What the hell, man? Okay, <laughs> this episode, we'll get into our final thoughts, but this is trickery. 
there is witchcraft going on in here because I'm watching this whole time and going, ah, this isn't fitting together the way that it should. And I'm liking all these individual scenes, but they all work individually. And even this ending, I'm like, what a great show. I'm like, no, wait, no, that's not what just happened. Uh, but I do love the song that's playing. It's called Space Lion, which uses the same uh, melody as Goodnight Julia. And we need to acknowledge just like the choices made in Space Lion because we have this sort of uh, choir that's uh, speaking in some sort of language. I'm not sure what it is. I couldn't find anything. It sounds like some sort of African language to me, or maybe a uh, Native American language. Couldn't find any evidence. Someone said it was Japanese on the internet. Hello, stranger. I don't know who you are, but you're fucking wrong. But we have the, we have hand percussion that's playing. We have that choir. There's more of that Native American singing that we heard from Laughing Bull that's like intertwined with it. And a synthesizer that's layered underneath that. And we know that they could have an orchestra if they wanted. Yoko Kano can do whatever she wants, but she wants that synthesizer. And I think it's such a better choice. And obviously she's playing that synthesizer. It's a wonderful song, even though it's very repetitive. It's more of just like a very loose saxophone solo. We'll talk about our final thoughts and obviously what other people thought, but what do you think about this ending as a whole right here and this music? And the, like, the, Did you actually watch all of the credits here? No, I, did, I didn't watch all the credits. Are you serious? You interrupted the song. It's a very nice song. I'm not going to watch, watch the credits. And instead of a Sea of Space Cowboy, uh, do you have a comrade? Which, of course, is uh, referencing you know the whole idea of having someone to look out for you just like Grin had Vicious. Very, very touching. It's a schmaltzy little ending. It's warm and fuzzy. It's neat. Not neat as in, well, that's cool. I mean, neat as in it's like, it's a tidy ending. It's nice, but also like you, it's just like, oh yeah, that was good. And then I start thinking about it, like, no, I don't, I don't fucking like this episode. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk about that in just a moment, Steve. But before you uh, show your bias, sir, why don't you tell us what Funimation and Internet Movie Database thought about Jupiter Jazz Part 1 and Part 2? Well, both Part 1 and Part 2 got a four. Interesting. So lower than last week. Lower than last week. Both of them got Both four. of them yeah. got a four. Interesting. Which, of course, these are always in flux. So mm -hmm. if it's three and a half next week, don't come crying to me, you babies. Yeah, and, and numerical values that are assigned to art are important. Speaking of such, what do we got over at the Intermovie Database? 7.4 for episode 12. Okay, that's higher than average. And 7.5 for episode 13. both higher than average. Mm -hmm. Let's get to the only information that really matters, though. The cigarette counter. Eight! One smoky treat for Spike getting closer to that pack of cigarettes. As for the Bounty County, Steve, how many bounties this week? Zero. World's worst bounty hunters. Actually, galaxy's worst bounty hunters. Well, here's one that is out of left field. You've talked about this before. Quantity and quality. I'm really intrigued. What are you going to say for this week's I Know Meter? Well, Colin, as you know, this was a double podcast. We had two episodes, which means double the I, which means I'm going to have to combine some scores in order to figure out what he really deserves, which is why this week I give Ein a Zwanzig! <laughs> what? A Zwanzig! I don't know what that is. It's 20 in German. <laughs> because it's like two tens together, because he's a perfect angel baby. You know what? That's a very controversial decision, but I just got to say, Ed falling on Ayn and watching him struggle, I, I totally agree. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what everyone else thought about part one and part two of Jupiter Jazz. Steve, your final thoughts on this episode. You know, I've already alluded to it multiple times throughout this episode. It, there's, there's a lot of individual things that I enjoyed and a lot of moments that I enjoyed. I was never bored, but a lot of this to me just didn't click. It felt really detached. It felt like it wasn't going anywhere. It didn't feel like it was telling me anything, but it still had this veneer of, this is an important episode because Vicious is here and we're doing important things. But really it was all lip service. There was, there was nothing there. There's no substance. I just, I didn't dig it. 
this is when I talk about anime and I'm joking around, I'm like, oh, I haven't really seen a lot, but here's what I think it's about. It's about giant robots and this and that and the other thing. Like this has so many negative stereotypes that I have personally developed about anime are just on full display here. It's just, it's messy. It's messy storytelling and it's a lot of just tropey bullshit. I feel like this episode is almost like the screener from, you know, for Oscar season. This is like, oh, look at all these clips. And you think, well, that must be a really good movie. But it's not because they don't, they don't, there's no connecting tissue with the narrative threads. The moments that Jet has are largely inconsequential. They're really nice moments. I love him going into that bar, you know, and talking to that bartender and almost calling Spike, you know, because he misses Spike, obviously. That's a really good moment, but it doesn't play so well against Grin and, and Faye having their romantic scene. It doesn't play so well with Spike's journey. I mean, like, I don't even really know what Spike is doing most of this time. Like, he has that elaborate fight scene. Like, take all these clips on their own and they're amazing. Put them together in an episode and it just doesn't connect. Like, I would like to actually sit down and recut this episode and, like, see how to fix it. Bebop always bites off more than it can chew. Always bites off more than it can chew. But it usually works out good enough. This time, you think they have two full episodes. They can do whatever they want. And they still bite off doing more than they can chew. They do even more than they should ever touch. Even have a gigantic musical number at the end of the episode where they're flying through space. Like, come on. The best Bebop episodes stick to a consistent tone. I can't say this one sticks to a consistent tone. And it doesn't contrast very well. And on top of that, I just, like, even if you want to ignore the social commentary on it, it's just the whole grin reveal and then Spike getting shot as a cliffhanger doesn't work for me. That being said, I really like this episode. What a shell. Like I still will look back on it fondly because my brain is going to recompile it into something better than it actually was. I remember watching this back when I was much younger and thinking these episodes were really good. So I think that maybe this is one that will appeal better to a younger audience. Nostalgia, buddy. No, no, no. Like as, as a kid, I remember actually very much enjoying this episode. I think if you show this to a 14 year old today, they're going to be like, wait, wait why, why did that guy have tits? That was very odd. Why did you put that in there? But they're also going to think this is a very nice uh, episode because the moment the beats they work very well on their own as an episode eh. well Colin that just about wraps up the show for this week so if you have any questions for us you know you can actually email us animebroadcastclub at gmail.com shoot us an email let us know what you thought of this episode let us know uh, what you think of the podcast so far if you have any questions comments death threats marriage proposals send them our way if you want to talk to me specifically and tell me I'm an idiot for not liking this show or give me shit for making fun of anime I'm not really making fun of it I just struggle with it sometimes okay it's a complicated relationship you can tweet at me at Steve Cuff that's at Steve C-U-F-F if you're interested in more podcasts more articles more more cool pop culture and just weird stuff. Check out optimismvaccine.com. We got plenty of articles, plenty of podcasts, all kinds of stuff. No matter what you're into, we got something for you. We got you fixed. And if I can, for just a moment right here, uh, let me let me tell you about a great opportunity that all you listeners are having right now. You are on the ground floor of an amazing opportunity. You just got to go to iTunes, go and look up the Opfag cast and give that podcast five stars and a written review so that when, uh, you know, the bombs finally go off and we got all those architects in 2025 or where the hell, that's only like 10 years from now, never mind. <laughs> but, uh, you know, <laughs> when, they're, when they're digging through the dirt and they find these iTunes reviews, they're going to think that podcast was pretty cool and they're going to remember your iTunes screen name in memorial forever I will remember you hey you can follow me on twitter at Dr. Karate Chop that's at Dr. Karate Chop so for Colin Tanner I'm Steve Cuff see you space cowboy
Next week, we're doing half the episode. That means half the podcast. Half the nitpicks. Half the useless knowledge. <clears throat> half the knowledge everyone appreciates. Half the negatives. Next episode, Bohemian Rhapsody. You're not going to want to miss it. <laughs>